So we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 8. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is good to be together today. Um, I've had a couple weeks not with you in uh, teaching. I was a couple weeks ago at uh, another church here in the city uh, preaching for them, and then last week was on vacation. So it's good to be back. Uh, I love you. This, our church, Church of the City, and it's so good to be teaching with you today. Uh, my name is Matt, for those of you that don't know me, and I'm the pastor of teaching and vision here at Church of the City. Well, I'll never forget the first Twitter debate that I ever got into. Now, some of you might be wondering, Twitter, uh, I think Twitter is less popular now, or maybe a Facebook debate, you could relate. Uh, these are the sorts of things my wife just says, do not get into. But I remember this particular one, I was uh, on Twitter, and I, I quoted a Bible verse about how God cares uh, for the least of these. And it took about half an hour, but someone with the, ha- with the Twitter handle, atheist by day and night, or something along those lines, I tweeted me a picture of uh, children in sub-Saharan Africa who were living in poverty. And they said, yeah, your God cares for the least of these. Please, like, went on and on. And I got back to them, and then they started quoting verses, and we went back and forth for probably about 20 tweets, and uh, totally worthwhile piece of time. And at the end of it, uh, it ended with this person tweeting back to me, um, okay, you're a smart Christian. I'll go and move on to my next prey. And I was like, oh my goodness, like, this is horrible. Like, probably some atheist sitting in their mom's basement, just like searching for people in the Twitter world who call themselves followers of Jesus or are followers of Jesus. I mean, what a great worthwhile piece of time they have. But anyways, it's their mission. And you can just see there are people out there with missions for how this world is supposed to look like. Now, a couple of things. Now, this seems completely absurd. And I actually looked back to try to find it, and I couldn't find it. Maybe this person suddenly now doesn't have Twitter anymore. They're... they're attacking people in some other way. But a couple of things stood out to me from this, uh, this engagement that we had. One was that many of the arguments that this person was making was taking verses of the Bible completely out of context. And maybe you can relate. I remember one time I posted on Facebook, Psalm 113, verses 5 to 6. It says, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? And uh, someone that I'm friends with on Facebook said, astronauts, 
Question mark? And I was like, no, no, like completely taking the psalm out of context. And many of us have, have felt, felt that before when we're, when we're trying to engage with people and they just quote a Bible verse at us. But the second thing that it pointed out to me is that this person, I don't know how legitimate they are, right? But they felt that there are a whole bunch of naive Christians out there. And this is a huge cultural perspective on Christians, is that Christians are Christians because they're naive about the world. So you need to, like, get educated because you're stupid, right? And many of us have maybe felt that before from our culture's perspective of us, that you're naive and you don't know things. And that is why you are a Christian. Now, we're going to talk today about how do we actually understand the Bible? How do we actually study the Bible? So what am I initially saying? I'm not saying go and get in a bunch of Twitter debates, all right? I'm not saying create a handle of like, all for Jesus 2016, and just start like going after atheists. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, and it was pointed out in the passage that Anita read for us from 1 Peter 3, and I want to highlight it again here on the screen, and um, you'll see the emphasis that I place. My apologies, this bottom should say 1 Peter 3 verses 4b. Uh, to 6, not, or 4b to 6, not to 16. I don't know why I did that. But specifically the part that I highlighted, this is our understanding as followers of Jesus, is that we're always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What we're reading here is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, if, we, if you claim to be one, should be ready to give a defense to people when they ask you why you follow Jesus. This is super important. Now, one, a couple of things to point out about this is people should be able to see the hope that is within you if you're a follower of Jesus. It means that the way that we live is going to be different than the world around us, the culture that is around us, that there's going to be a hope within us that is going to demand questions to be asked of us. But this is really, really important that we as followers of Jesus understand why we are followers of Jesus and have some understanding of the Bible. Um, I like this quote. The author is unknown, but it says this, The world doesn't read the Bible, but they read those who do. Think about that. The world doesn't read the Bible, but they read those who do. So for those of us that are followers of Jesus, just think about that for a second. How do people read you? And what Bible would they say you read? Now, for those of you that aren't followers of Jesus, you're skeptics to Christianity, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And you'd probably make this argument for maybe the reason that you're not a follower of Jesus is Christians are actually the greatest reason I'm not a Christian. And we've got to be honest about that. Now, a couple of things before we jumped in. I just want to make some apologies. And I don't know how I... Matt Naismith can represent everything, but I just want to say, based on, I just want to apologize for bad interpretation, people who had bad interpretations who permitted themselves to do evil things and did it behind the nature of we're standing for the Bible and we're standing for God. I think, can think specifically of the witch hunts and executions from the 1500s to the 1800s. I think of the African-American slave trade. I think of even present day and historical racism and marginalization of ethnic minorities and refugees. These things we as followers of Jesus need to stand against, even if it's against someone else that calls himself a follower of Jesus. 
Because as we understand the Bible, they're basing their feelings on bad interpretations. And I also want to apologize for those who, based on right interpretation, have practiced their conviction for Christ in a non-Christ-like way. I can think specifically of Christians' treatment of the LGBTQ plus community. I can think specifically in these times of some of the separatist movements within the Christian culture of let's just stay away from culture and let's throw stones at those who are part of our culture. I can think of those who have been alienated because of uh, divorce. I can think of those, and you can, we could just go down the list, the people that Christians, based on right interpretations, have treated people incredibly poorly. And so just right up front, I want to apologize if, if, if you have been hurt. Uh, we are sorry here at Church of the City, and we are not claiming perfection, and no Christian movement should ever claim perfection. The one that is perfect is Jesus Christ. And so we are broken, and we need Jesus. And so I know I have friends that aren't followers of Jesus, and they seem to hold me to a higher standard because I call myself a Christian. And uh, sometimes I, I wonder about that. I think maybe that's a bit of a double standard because I'm suddenly religious, I need to be demanded of more of. But we have done a lot of harm. The Christian movement has. And so we need to represent Jesus and think rightly about the Bible. So as we jump in, just a few things right off the bat. Some of you are like, ooh, this is getting intense quickly. Yeah, because there have been a lot of intense things, terrible things done in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, As we transition, I know an argument that is often made specifically about how to read the Bible and understand the Bible is, well, what about all the various interpretations of the the Bible? There seems to be a lot of variety in denominations, so I'm just going to avoid the mess altogether. Like you Christian people, you can't get your act together. What's with all of these different denominations? Now, what I would simply say uh, in response is that there are uh, various levels of interpretations of the Bible and particular teachings, and we call these things doctrines. And so within the scriptures, we have those things that are primary doctrines. We have secondary doctrines, and then we have tertiary doctrines. Now, primary doctrines are those things that are essential. They're what you're going to find on most churches' websites under what we believe about God, what we believe about the Trinity, what we believe about Jesus Christ, what we believe about salvation. These are the things that if you disagree with, then you're no longer within the evangelical Protestant Christian movement. So they are the essentials, the primary doctrines. Beneath the primary doctrines, we have those things that are called the secondary doctrines. And these are the the doctrines that typically begin Again, some of the, the different separation and denominations. So, for example, you have things like the role of women in the church. You have um, some definitions around marriage. Uh, you have some feelings around uh, God's role or man's role in salvation, a huge debate and topic, as some of us are aware of. And then thirdly, you have tertiary doctrines. And tertiary doctrines are those things where, you know, even within a denominational movement like our own, like the fellowship, there's going to be a variety of feelings. Uh, some Something like the topic of violence versus nonviolence in the scriptures. Um, some thinking around Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, is this to be understood as six literal days or different? These are where you're going to find some tertiary differences as far as doctrines are concerned. Now, why I say all of that is because many of us maybe don't have this, this, this sort of thinking or this rubric of thinking. Or what do I think about this? What do I think about that? What do I think about that? Secondly, is that for those that would say, well, there's just such a mess all about that I'm just going to avoid it altogether, 
by you doing that, you are having a position yourself. So you are claiming your own idea, that the best idea is just to avoid it altogether. And what I would challenge you with is, is to actually question ideas in general and ask if particular ideas or doctrines are actually worthy to hold. And this is where we can engage in dialogue, understanding where the doctrines fall between primary, secondary, and tertiary, and, and actually have good discussion about, well, what does that mean? Or how do we study the Bible in this way? Or what do you think this means? And some of these debates get so intense that you start talking about uh, the actual words in Greek and the, the participles and all of the different ways that they're used. And these are good discussions to have. But we need to remember, if we are on the same place in our primary, we're part of the same family, and therefore we need to engage each other in a really, really healthy way, in humility, being gracious, understanding that, you know, I, as, as one of our elders, Jeff Bellsfield, talks about all the time, is his metaphor for, like, our life is, we're all kids in a sandbox, and God is the, the father. And so we're all kids in a sandbox, and we're discussing various ideas. If you know Jeff Bellsfield, you'll know this, because he's probably said it in like a prayer with you if you've been praying with him. God, I just thank you. I love that, Jeff. Don't, don't let me get down an idea for that. But we're just kids in a sandbox, and we're talking about things. But there is a reason to have an idea, and some ideas are not worth holding. And so we discuss that, and that's why we exist within a denomination. We have particular uh, feelings about particular things, and why we teach from a certain perspective. Now, all of those things said, how do we actually understand or read the Bible? Like, if I pick it up and I just find a verse, here I have, Naboth's vineyard. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Some of us are going to go, where's that? What is that all about? What's this vineyard all about? Now, number one, okay, I'm going to give you sort of three frameworks for how to understand and how to read the Bible that I think are essential entry-level things. And by entry-level, I mean you could start just pulling off the layers on top of each of these, but some really helpful things. Now, this I think will be helpful both for those of us that are followers of Jesus and for those that are sort of like, I'm not really sure if I want to be, and I'm just here checking it out. Someone invited me, so I'm being nice to them by coming. The first thing is the Bible tells the story of God. Now, many of us, if we're honest, mistake the Bible to be a list of commands. But did you know this? The Bible is 43% narrative— 43% narrative, 33% poetry, less than 20% are letters or epistles, and in the single digits are actual commands. So the Bible tells the story of God. This is essential for us to understand. It's unlike the Quran, uh, which uh, Muslims uh, look to, which is very, it's very much like the Proverbs. If you've ever read the Proverbs before, it's very much like the Proverbs. In the Bible, we actually have a narrative. We have a story, and the commands fall within that story as you go along. And so why this is really, really important is that people dismiss the Bible for just being a bunch of commands, which, as I said, in the percentages is in the single digits. And what we need to understand that the Bible is actually telling an incredible story. Now, one of the most helpful frameworks of this grand story that I've come across is the breakdown of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And in creation, just really quickly, you have the narrative or poetry of Genesis 1 and 2. 
you begin to see and understand that in the beginning, God created. So you begin to know as right away is that God, in the Christian worldview, is a singular God in three persons, but it's God who creates. There's not multiple gods who create. It's one God that creates, and he creates things in and by a certain way, and we read about that in the very beginning. But then in Genesis 3, we have the fall, which is humanity rebelling against their good creator and choosing to do things their own way. Now, I've heard people make the argument before, like, oh, we, so we just inherited what Adam and Eve did. No, because I'm guessing you still do things that rebel against God, too. And so we need to see the time that we live in in light of the fact, and this is the Christian answer for suffering. Like, every worldview out there has to answer for why is there suffering. It's not just Christianity and God when people say, I can't believe in God because of pain and suffering. Okay, well, how does your atheistic worldview answer pain and suffering? In the Christian worldview, Genesis 3 answers that question. That we rebelled against God and therefore everything, everything. Like I can just list off things. Environment, food, commercial things, things that we buy. All of this has been affected by the fall, our human rebellion against God. And so the fall affects, right from Genesis 3, right to the end in Revelation 21 and 22. But in the middle of that, we have redemption. And this is God's plan to redeem and restore all that is broken. When God could have said, I'm going to back off. I don't want anything to do with you, humanity. You rebelled against me. God says, no, I am going to save them. I am going to redeem them. And the way that I'm going to do that is that Jesus is going to come to earth. And he's going to live the life that those humans could not live. He's going to die the death that all those humans should die so that they can spend eternity with me forever. And so that begins, I mean, it's told, it's prophesied in the Old Testament, but then in the New Testament, the New Testament begins with these biographies of Jesus Christ and what he came to do. And so that's the redemption. And so we actually, it changes the way we read the story. So, and then you go through Jesus, and then after the biographies of Jesus, you have the tellings and acts of, well, then what happened after Jesus? Then you have the story, the narrative of the Jesus movement taking off, and then you have letters from Paul writing to various churches about what's going on. And then Revelation, which is, if you stick around here long enough, we'll eventually get there, helps us understand a bit of the future and what, the, what that's going to look like. But not only future, but also present. And that's a bit of a mis miscommunication around Revelation, that it's just about the future. No, it's also a book for present times. So that's a bit of an understanding. So a few examples, okay? <laughs> let's, let's have some fun with a few examples, okay? And you'll understand why I'm using these examples. So Leviticus 19 verse 28 says this, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. How many of you heard this one before? How come Christians can have tattoos? Why can't they have tattoos? You are, you are not a good Christian because you have a tattoo. Okay. There's one. Um, there are others here. Now, the question to ask is, where is this found in the grand story? Right? This is found in Leviticus. You start Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Wow, early on. It's found Leviticus. What is, the, what is the time of Leviticus all about? It's laws given to the Israelite people so that they would live different or set apart from the various nations around them. 
Okay, lovely to know. Does the law of Leviticus also apply to me today? No. Because once Jesus comes, he fulfills the demands of the law and therefore sets a new path forward. Now, what's always hilarious about people who make this argument is that the verse that comes prior to verse 28 of Leviticus 19 is this. You shall not eat any flesh with blood in it. Okay, so for those of you that like your steak, insanely rare, yet you're standing against tattoos. Back down. Uh, You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. How dare you? Now, why I'm doing this is simply expressing to us, people have taken that verse completely out of context and tried to apply it it to present-day situation without looking at the grand story. Or how about a classic one, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Great verse, right? But what's the story surrounding it? Check this out. This is what it says in the verse prior. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. But he just said, you're going to be in uh, exile for 70 years. Oh, anyone missed that one? Right? So a lot of us quote that when it's like, oh, you know, everything's going to be perfect. Everything's going to be peachy. And it's like, come on now, 70 years of exile. All right? So that's one of the great ways of understanding and reading the scriptures is through the grand story. Understanding creation, fall, redemption, restoration, when Jesus will return and remake all things and restore all things to the glory of which he created it in the very beginning. Second way to understand the Bible is to read the Bible and history. The first one I would say is that the Bible actually illuminates history. Uh, In Luke 1, or Luke 2, verses 1 and 2, it says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So the Bible is mentioning historic detail. Went out from Caesar Augustus. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. See, so the Bible actually quotes historical fact. Uh, C.S. Lewis, very interesting individual, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which many of us are aware of. He was an atheist for many years and then became converted to Christianity. And one of the reasons in which he converted was because he read the Bible and he said, it's incredibly historically accurate. Its narrative makes sense with what we know of history. It's fascinating. So as you read the Bible, it illuminates history. But then secondly, history actually helps us and illuminates the Bible. And the ways that this actually works is that we can look at historical, cultural study. So we can better interpret and apply the Bible by understanding what was going on within the culture that it was written. Now, a skeptical argument against the Bible is, well, the Bible was written so long ago, therefore it does not apply today. And a simple defense to that position is that the Bible, though written over a thousand years, never agrees with the time and culture in which it was written. That's really important to understand. As you read the scriptures, what you will find is that some people 
don't understand this right, is that they read it and they say, well, he's just, or they are just interpreting this to understand that they're agreeing with their current culture and therefore they're trying to impress their culture upon our culture. And that's not fair because we live in a different culture. But the thing is, as you study the culture, as you read the Bible, you find that every single writer is writing into a culture and not agreeing with the current culture. And so what we can understand is that the Bible's vision for humanity actually transcends culture and presents a new society, the kingdom of God. Uh, we can think specifically of a few examples of the treatment of women in the Bible. You can look at Jesus's, Jesus and women. Uh, example, some of his divorce statements in a culture which was extremely patriarchal and which women were not given any rights. Jesus gives women rights. He stands for them, as does Paul when he talks about marriage in Ephesians 5. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. But then he goes, husbands, die for your wives. So the men would have been standing there, reading the letter and hearing, oh yeah, wives, you do that. You submit to me. And then they keep reading, husbands, be willing to die for your wives as Christ did the church. <gasps> he didn't. This is an example. Or how about slavery? Paul on slavery, you can look at that, Ephesians 6. And Paul is saying, slaves, obey your masters. Now this is written in a culture, and we read it through the lens of African-American slave trade. This was a di that's a different style of slavery than what was going on at the time. Uh, much of the slavery, as you do ancient study, was not specifically like that in which the slave had no rights, but a, a place in which slaves did have rights. Like rights that, very similar to if you work a job with a boss, similar ways of that relationship was going on then. How is that then illuminated for us? By understanding and studying the history. Or how about Jesus on enemy love or loving your enemies on the Sermon on the Mount? Was he writing this in a culture where people were like, we love our enemies, what, what? No. He's writing this into a culture in which people hated their enemies, where their survival demanded destroying their enemies. And Jesus says, love them. Or you can even look, read Paul, what we read before in 1 Peter, and all of 1 Peter, written to a culture in which Christians are being persecuted and killed for their faith. Paul says, don't avenge yourselves. What? Crazy. Or how about sexuality? People make the argument, well, Jesus never discusses homosexuality directly. Now, in, in disagreement with that, he does speak to marriage, affirming man and woman, but why not homosexuality? And culturally speaking, a Jew in those days would not have ever understood homosexuality, uh, not the attraction, but the action of same-sex sex to be acceptable in the eyes of God. And so therefore, as we study the culture, we can understand, okay, what is Jesus actually saying? What is he affirming? And what is he not affirming? And he goes back to the Genesis account of what it means for marriage to function in the creation narrative. Or how about historical witness? This is fascinating. So first we can study culture, but then we can also study historical witness. This was written, this was written by a guy named Josephus in Rome in the year 93. And Josephus published his lengthy history of the Jews. And he writes this, and I have it on the screen. About this time, so this is a, not a Christian person. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things, and a thousand 
thousand others marveled about him. And the tribe of the Christians so-called after him has still to this day not disappeared. I love that. That's not in the Bible. That's a historian that our culture looks at as a, as a wealth of information to understand this period of time. And he's attesting to Jesus. That Jesus was who he says he was. And so as we understand the Bible, we can understand history. Final piece of framework for really helping us understand the scriptures is the Bible and literary genre. The Bible and literary genre. The Bible, as I said, has narrative. It has poetry. It has something called apocalyptic literature, which was really popular. And this is where we get revelation. Now, why this is really, really important is that when you pick up a passage and you read it, you maybe are starting to think of words like literal. Do I take this literally? Now, typically people, when they use the word literal about the Bible, what they're really saying is, I take the Bible literally. Therefore, I take the Bible more seriously than you do. And that's not the case. You have to ask the Bible, Bible and writers, as I'm reading this, do you want me to understand this literally in the sense of concretely, or do you want me to understand this literally in the sense of abstractly? So for example, if I am to say, I drive now uh, like a big white boat. Uh, some of you are laughing. I got a minivan. And so if I were to say, I drive like a big white boat, some of you are like, oh, he drives a boat. Did I mean that? No. I drive a white minivan, which abstractly is now feels like a, bit, like a big boat I'm driving around, right? This is to help us understand. Sometimes the scriptures are the same way. So for example, Psalm 23, okay? Popular psalm. How do we understand it? The Lord is my shepherd. Okay, what do you understand as a shepherd? Do you refer to shepherds often? Think of shepherd in your mind. I shall not want... He makes me lie down in green pastures. Has the Lord who is your shepherd ever made you lie down in a green pasture? Uh, does he ever lead you beside still waters? Maybe when you're at the cottage on vacation, walking by a stream. What is this? Well, this is a psalm. This is a song of David to God. He's thanking the Lord for his protection. He's thanking the Lord for his provision. And he's using language of song and poetry to express his love for God. Now, does this mean that those things are not true? That metaphorically speaking, he does lead us into green pastures of nourishment? Yes, that's exactly what he means. And that's of God. Is he meaning that uh, by, by, by still waters rather than rocky waters, does God ever lead you through metaphorically seasons of where the streams are stilled and they're not rocky? Yes, absolutely. So there is an example that all of us would probably have a sense that, well, as I read that, I'm reading it metaphorically, abstractly, and not literally in the sense of concretely that God actually makes me lie down in, in green pastures. How about Revelation? Do you want to use an example from there? Just briefly, okay? Super fun. Revelation 19, verses 13 to 16. I have this on the screen. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And by the name which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Whoo! Where do you start? 
Now, as I said, this out of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, which is also a lot about symbolism, understanding imagery. So for example, the word of God we understand in John 1 is the Logos or Jesus. So there's one sign of helping. White in the scriptures is a symbol of purity and holiness or set apartness. Or how about a sharp sword in the mouth? Does this literally mean that Jesus is going to have a sword out of his mouth as he's riding a horse? Like that would be a phenomenal movie, but is that actually what's going on here? No, we understand in the scriptures that the sword is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Therefore, Jesus will win his enemies back by the word of his mouth from the mouth of God. Not a sword out of the mouth, like whack, whack, like, come on now, think about it, right? Now, did I, am I taking the Bible literally? I'm taking the Bible literally if it's asking me to take it literally. Am I taking it seriously? Yes. Am I taking this particular passage concretely, that that's exactly how it's going to happen? No, because I don't think the writer of Revelation, that is John, interpreting his vision, wants me to understand it that way. There are things in the scriptures, though, we are to take, if you use the word literal, like David and Goliath. Was this a literal, concrete, or non-literal abstract story? It's a literal, concrete story. All right. So, some of you are like, where is this going? These are three filters. We understand the Bible as a story of God. We understand the Bible through history. And we can understand the Bible through understanding literary genre. Now, all of this said, the Bible and believing in the canon of the Scripture is still a step of faith. Right? And some of you are sitting there and, and you're skeptical of this whole thing. And you're like, I just can't do it. I can't do it. And we as Christians need to be willing to acknowledge that, that yes, it is a step of faith. But here's what James in chapter 2 says about faith. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So if we have faith in the, the Bible is God's word to us in looking at some of the examples that Jeremiah talked about last week and looking at the historical reliability of the Bible that we looked at two weeks ago. What does this demand of us if we say we have faith? It demands us do work with the scriptures. It demands us to say, I have faith that what is going on here is legitimate, understanding its context, understanding its history, understanding the story. But what that means is that you've got to pick it up and study it. To understand it. We have more resources available to us in our day now as far as understanding and studying the Bible than anybody ever had. Yet we also have the most biblically illiterate culture. That's a problem. If we're to give a reason for the hope that's within us, you better have a reason. The Bible is so accessible. And these things in three things in combination with the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, he will grip you and he'll reveal God's truths to you and you'll take them seriously. Like the fact, think about this from a cultural perspective, the fact that you would take a book that was written so many years ago seriously as a guide to your life, as understanding the great story of all things, to our culture is absurd. Yet I'm sure the Holy Spirit, if you believe that, has convicted your heart. He's gripped you and said, no, it's not absurd. It's my truth for you. But it still takes a step of faith 
if you're a liberal or you're a skeptic, I'd ask you the question, what is holding you back from this step of faith with the Bible? What is it? Because you're taking a step of faith and not considering its legitimacy. I think there's been enough that we've presented over the last four weeks, enough study gone into it. What is it that's holding you back from taking that step? Do you believe the good news of Jesus? Can you take Jesus seriously? Because if you take Jesus seriously, you must take the Bible seriously as well. And then on the other side, I'd say to those of us that are maybe can be considered legalists, how do you view the Bible? Is the Bible equal to you with the Trinity? What are you legalistic about? What holds you back? Is grace pouring out of your life as you read the Bible? Or do you love the Bible more than you actually love God? If you quote a lot of scriptures, but you never talk about your intimacy with Jesus, you may love the Bible more than you actually love him. That doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't express your love for him, but it certainly is a place to start. So let's land the plane. Here's what I believe. I believe that the Bible itself is a picture of the gospel as God uses imperfect people to write his perfect word. God is in the business through Christ of redeeming and restoring all broken things. So wouldn't it be so characteristic of our God that he would use broken people to write a perfect word? It's amazing that he would do that. It's absolutely incredible. And here's what I'd say. If you believe and submit to Jesus Christ in all areas of your life, you will grow in your submission to God's word through the Bible. I've yet to meet somebody that had a really stellar relationship with God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ and was not immersing themselves in the Bible. And maybe there's a person out there, but I'm telling you, when I meet someone who's on fire in their relationship with Jesus, the Spirit is speaking to them regularly, they're a person that spends a lot of time in their Bible. And that there, then there would be other people that I come in contact with that are struggling in their faith. They're struggling in their obedience to Jesus. They're st- struggling trusting God in the broken areas of their own life. And as we begin to ask questions and examine, they don't take the Bible seriously. They're not even reading it. So here's what I'd say. If you believe and submit to Jesus Christ in all areas of your life, you will grow in your submission to God's word through the Bible. There is a connection There is a connection with how you view the Bible and your health of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we've just done four weeks on what is the Bible, right? Talked about what does authority mean? Can we historically trust it? What are the alternatives? And today, how to actually study it in a helpful way. And I hope this has been helpful to you. But you might be sitting there and going, okay, like, resources, where do I go? And number one, you you know that I use it all the time. I would say that the Bible Project's YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Bible Project, is an incredible resource. Incredible resource uh, for helping you understand what each each verse and chapter and book of the Bible is talking about. They have the fantastic Read Scripture series, which has five-minute videos that gives an overview of every single book in the Bible. It's amazing. Secondly, I would say picking up a study Bible. 
Uh, I recommend the ESV study Bible, but there are other study Bibles out there. What a study Bible has, as you can see here, it has the, the verses and the chapters of the Bible at the top, but then at the bottom you have breakdowns of what each verse is actually referring to. It's a great resource to have. I know that it's been helpful in many of our discipleship groups here at Church of the City to have a study Bible on hand. And then finally, you could take some biblical online courses. Uh, a website that I think is amazing is Porterbrook. You can go to porterbrooknetwork.org slash porterbrook-learning. And there's a whole bunch of courses that you can take on understanding the Bible, trying to understand Christianity. Uh, they usually cost about $13 for a whole course, but it's so affordable and so worthwhile, and I'd so encourage you to do it. And then lastly, I'd encourage you to enter into community here at Church of the City. Uh, you'll know that if you've been here a while or if you're going to plan on spending time here a while, we like to study books of the Bible. Uh, we'll be starting in a couple weeks, a look at the Psalms as we go into the Christmas season. And then the new year, we're going to be looking at uh, Hebrews and studying what Hebrews is all about. So really excited about it because we believe that as we take our faith in Jesus seriously, we need to take the Bible seriously as well as we study all of these things. Now, I recognize this was all probably a bit like, felt like a bit of a, like a school lecture. What I want to do is I want to invite you to stand. All right, let's stand. I stayed very close to my notes today because I know I had a lot to say and a lot of content to cover, and I probably only began opening the can. But here's what I want to ask you, okay, as we transition into a time of response. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So I'd ask you that. Just ponder that in your own mind. Who do people say that Jesus is in your life and those around you? And after Jesus gets a bit of feedback on who people say that he is, he then turns and says, yes, but who do you say that I am? So I ask you that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he some wise teacher? Is he the Typical, long-bearded, long-haired person? Or is he, in fact, the Lord of your life? C.S. Lewis said, you either take Jesus to be a liar, a lunatic, or he is, in fact, Lord. And if you claim his lordship, then it demands your submission to him. It demands saying, I'm going to put my own ways, my own desires aside because I want to follow Jesus. So as we respond today, I would ask you to respond to Jesus asking the question, who do you say that I am? And if you say he's the king, and if you say that he is Lord, then that demands submission to his authority. And we find his authority expressed in the Bible. I want to invite you that if you would like people to pray with you, to come to the front. We have a prayer team that would love to pray with you. If you have something you want to thank God for. But earlier we prayed that, that Jesus' power and his name would break every chain. So maybe you're sitting there and you're struggling because a chain does not seem broken. Would you come to the front? Would you get on your knees? Would you pray? You don't even have to pray with someone. You can just come to the front as a, as a symbol, as an expression of, I need Jesus, I need his power to break every chain in my life.
We can know if we have submission and authority handed over to Jesus in the way that we sometimes express ourselves physically. And who better to express that with than other people around you who are also claiming that they're trying to submit to this authority? So come forward. Take this opportunity this morning. May you be blessed by it. And may we be ministered to by the Holy Spirit today. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for who you are. And God, I know that this has been a lot of information and we've only (laughs) scratched the surface. But Jesus, we want to know you. And you ask us, who do you say that I am? So I pray, Jesus, that if there is anybody in this room today who does not believe that you are Lord, that you're some liar or lunatic, that you in this moment, Holy Spirit, would break that chain in their life. And that you would draw them to salvation in you. Only through you, Jesus. The claims you make in the scriptures are absurd. But if they're true, they demand our obedience. And so we thank you. We need you. So break every chain, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.